Hey, we want to dismiss the kids, too, for workshop. Come on, let's cheer one more time. We cheer for our kids. Nice. I have a whole assortment of guitars here. I'd like to play you a song. Come on, they did great, didn't they? They've been working on that and practicing and trying so hard. Oh, it's fantastic, fantastic. You can tell that the older boys every year are not especially excited as about as being apart as they should be, right? When you get caught in between the teenage years, and right? It's good. They're like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take one for the team. I'm going to take one for the team. Oh, it's good. Well, we're excited that you're here tonight. You know, we're in the middle of a launch of a new series called Near, and we kind of started last week talking about this idea of the nearness of of God, and, and so we're going to be in this series through December, but before we kind of move into the message for tonight, we just wanted to, to get everybody thinking about January. We're going to do a, a fast together in January, uh, it, depending on whether or not you've fasted before or what kind of fast you want to do. We've, we've, we've parsed it out so it has different markers, but we're going to back up from it's the last Saturday in January is our anniversary service. We've backed up 20 days from there. We're going to get those dates on the calendar for people that maybe want to run after a 20-day fast. I'm going to do a 20-day fast this year. It's the longest I will have ever fasted. So I want to do a, a 21 come on and then maybe next year if we feel so inclined, maybe we'll, we'll reach for 30 and the year for that we'll see if we can do a 40. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. But we know not everybody's going to be up for 20 and so then you can jump in at different times. You can jump in at, at uh, I think the next one is, uh, is, is 7 or 14 and then there's, you can jump in at 3. 20, 14, 7 and 3 are the markers we put in there. Uh, and then you could just do one day at the very end, and then we're going to break it at the anniversary uh, service together. If, if you don't really know a lot about fasting, that's new for you. It's one of our 12 pathways as a church, one of the ways that lead us into the depths of eternal life. There's a book by Dr. Elmer Towns called Fasting for Spiritual Breakthrough. If you're looking for a great book that just talks about fasting still being a part of this modern-day life, it's not just something that people did in the Bible. It's something that we're supposed to do uh, in this life. That's a great book to get started. And then we just did a teaching on that, that you would be able to find that in the archives of our, of our podcast over the summer. So, all right, near, let's talk about this idea of the nearness of God. This is kind of the big idea that's, that we're unpacking through this whole month, is that you and I are desperate for the nearness of God. Of all of the ways that we hope to grow in this life, the physical proximity of our Heavenly Father is essential. This Christmas, our greatest present will be His presence. So we opened last week talking about this study that was done years ago that compared infants in developing countries worth uh, compared to industrialized nations. And what they found is that the growth rates for children in impoverished countries were dramatically faster and higher than those of industrialized nations, and they thought it would be the reverse. And what they began to realize, it's because those infants in impoverished countries, in developing countries, had constant human contact. They were always in contact with another human being. And because they had that constant contact, because there was that nearness they experienced early in life, that they progressed off the chart, faster than anything technology could offer them. And what we see in that is a lesson in our spiritual life. 
If you and I are going to grow in all the ways that we need to grow, there is a nearness of God that we have got to discover all the days of our life. And so each week, we just want to give you a few verses that talk about the nearness of God. We're not going to study these. We have another text that we're going to look at. But each week, we want to give you some. The notes are always on the website that you can go and download. And then hopefully, you're going to spend some time with these during the week. But here's Hebrews 4.14. It says, So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings that we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. Listen to what it says. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. There is a direct correlation and connection between the nearness of God and us finding the help that we need to change and transform in all the ways that God expects us to in this life. 719 says, for the law never made anything perfect, talking about the Mosaic law before Jesus came, but now we have confidence and a better hope through which we draw near to God. And then chapter 10, verse 22, it says, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. We talked about what that means last week to make us clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water. We hope that you come every Saturday with an expectation that you're going to experience the presence of God in your life and that hopefully by experiencing the presence of God in your life here, it gives you a sense of expectation that you carry with you when you go. That you don't have to just be in church to experience his presence. He's everywhere, all the time, in every part of your life. And something inside of you has to learn how to be awakened to his presence. So part of this series is talking about how do we do that? How do we experience the nearness of God? So in this series, we talked about the nearness of heart last week, how the creator of the universe wants to be so close to us that he lives inside of us, and we connected that to Egypt. And part of this series, we're going to see that even the ge geography of the Christmas narrative teaches us something important. The, tonight, we're going to talk about Nazareth, this idea of the least of these. Next week, we're going to talk about Jerusalem, the nearness of God that we experience in the church. Then we have our Christmas Eve service, and then we're going to finish up at the end of the year on New Year's Eve, uh, Bethlehem, talking about the nearness of God that we experience spirits in spiritual places. All right, Luke 2, 1 through 20. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. While you're turning there, we had our annual leaders Christmas party last night. I'm a little bitter. My, we, uh, we do a white elephant, you know, gift. You know what that is, where you, everybody brings kind of a, you have a mix of gag gifts and, and some, are, some, are, some are nice gifts. I did not leave with a nice gift. I'm still, still working through it in my heart a little bit. You know, you, you pick one, you know, if there's something in the room that you would rather, you could take somebody else's right, but sometimes you get stuck no matter how hard you try. So I went home as a 45-year-old man with a Justin Bieber music toothbrush. It has two settings, a daytime setting and a nighttime setting. So there's two songs, and each song lasts two minutes, which is the dentist recommended time to brush your teeth, which I didn't know that. I'm, I'm woefully behind in my minutes for brushing my teeth, apparently. I don't think I've ever brushed my teeth for two minutes in my entire life. So I'm just, you know, because I'm a gracious person, I'm just going to leave this up here. And if you're a closet Justin Bieber fan at the end of the service, we'll all turn around and you can come up and get that and you can, you can take that home. I was going to try to give it away, but I figured the person who might really want it would not want to raise their hand. So we'll just trust that that won't be there next week. So. And I haven't used it, by the way, if you're wondering that. 
you're germophobic people. I wonder if you use that. I did make sure that it worked, but I did not put it in my mouth. I promise. I promise. You can trust me. All right. At least not for two minutes. I didn't. All right, Luke 2, 1 through 20. Let's actually jump down to verse 8. The whole story is, is 1 through 20. The, the first seven verses are, are Mary and Joseph leaving Bethlehem or leaving Nazareth and making their way to Bethlehem because there was a census that was being done. But I want, I want to pick up in verse 8. It says, In the same regions, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. And then an angel of the Lord stood before them And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Just one angel so far. That's important. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. For look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people today. A Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord, was born for you in the city of David, which is Bethlehem. And this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in a cloth, or some translations in swaddling clothes, and lying in a feeding trough, which is another way to say manger. Now listen to this. It changes. Verse 13. Suddenly there was a multitude of heavenly hosts with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to people he favors. And when the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the feeding trough. And after seeing him, they reported the message that they they were told about the child to all who heard it and were amazed that the shepherds, what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard just as they had been told. Everything about the birth of Jesus speaks of humble circumstances. Everything about the birth of Christ, the birth of the Savior of the world, the King of kings. Think of all the pomp and circumstance that we would think that he would deserve and he could have had it all, but he chose a beginning and a birth that was just almost exaggerated humble circumstances. You know, we like to give something away every week at the City Life Church. Come on, you're going to have to earn it this week. How many times is Nazareth mentioned in the Old Testament? So many of the cities, you know, they're always mentioned in the Old Testament, multiple, multiple times all throughout the history. So Nazareth, how many times? Somebody give me a guess. One. One. Anybody else? Seven. Somebody else? Sonia said zero. Three. Five. It's none. Way to go, Sonia. Come on. $10 Chick-fil-A gift card. None. All the cities that you find mentioned in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, usually at least have one mentioned in the Old. Nazareth, not one time. All of the story of the history of Israel, Jesus' family comes from a city that really has no name. A city of absolute obscurity. And then he's born in a barn. And you know what's striking to me? Is that even after Mary had the baby... Nobody goes out of the inn that was too crowded for them to get into and tried to trade places with them. What was wrong with those people, right? Come on. 
You could see if they were late arrivals and they, people might not want to give up their room. But even after the baby was born, and you know just as well as I do, they know exactly what was happening, that a, a woman was giving birth. Nobody went to trade places with them because they were poor, homeless people, and people did not want to give them the time of day. They were the least of these. A king that was laid in a trough in a manger. And then the people that are given mention in the story of the birth of Christ were the shepherds. All the different groups of people in society that God could have made the first mention to. All of the people in that town. People had traveled from all over for this census. It was filled with people from every range of the socioeconomic status. The shepherds, when you study ancient history, were the lowest of the low. Lowest of the low. I worked with the homeless for about 10 years in Richmond before we came here to Newport News, and I would ask them sometimes, what's the hardest job you've ever done? You know, it was day laborers, and they would talk, and they would argue, and everybody would come up with what they thought the hardest job was. And, and inevitably, they all came to the same conclusion after a little bit of jeering one another, working behind an asphalt truck in the middle of summer. Every time, they would always come back to that answer. Not many of us have probably worked behind an asphalt truck in the middle of the summer before. We have choices. We have alternatives. The shepherds were the people in society that worked behind the asphalt trucks in the middle of the summer because they would do the jobs that nobody else wanted to do. They were oftentimes the very outcasts. Not the people that, that, that own herds. We're not talking about the wealthy people, but the shepherds that would be in the field at night working the night shift were the lowest of the low. And isn't it interesting that that's who God chose to bring the revelation of the birth of his son to? I am telling you, there is something about the least of these. When we're there, we experience the nearness of our God. All throughout the story of the birth of Christ, we see incidents of angels coming to talk with people. Right? There was an angel that came to Zechariah. There was an angel that came to Joseph. There was an angel that came to Mary. And at first, there was an angel that came to the shepherds, but then they got just something a little extra, didn't they? It says the heavens opened and a whole choir of angels came and sang to them. Nowhere else in the narrative story of the birth of Christ did somebody get that. They might have gotten one, and that's something to boast about, but the rest, come on. They got a legion of angels singing in song. I'm telling you, they got a glimpse out of this realm into another. We're going to be talking about that when we talk about Bethlehem at the end of the year. And it happened right there with the shepherds. There is something about the least of these that Jesus wants us to understand. He is Emmanuel, God with us. We talked about that last week. And one of the ways that we experience his presence is when we're willing to be amongst the least with him. There is a nearness of God in humble circumstances in the least that is only possible when we are willing to journey into places and among people where being under-resourced is a daily reality. Let me read the last part of that again. When we are willing to journey into places and among people, which means you have to get out of your car. You tracking? Into places and among people. Not because you took a wrong turn, because your GPS was off. That doesn't count. Into places and among people where being under-resourced is a daily reality. Luke 1.26 is one of the first moments in, the, in Luke's account of the gospel that he connects the town of Nazareth to the birthplace of, 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 of Jesus' family because they left there because that's where they were from. And then they went to, went to Bethlehem. And even in this 
city. Even in this study of this ancient place, we find that it was the least of these. It was in a geographic depression. How would you like to live in a geographic depression? It was the city that was in the very bottom of the basin. When you study the history of Israel, you find that there are 20 or so surrounding battlefields, but nothing of significance ever happened in Nazareth. Mount Carmel's close by where Elijah called fire down from heaven. Elisha's house is nearby. Jezreel is a neighboring town. If if you're looking for a, a study in geography, it's fascinating because there's nothing of significance that happened in Nazareth all throughout the entire story of Israel. And God says, I think that's the perfect place for Jesus' origin to be from. Why is that? Because he's trying to tell us that there is a nearness, there's a closeness that we discover with him when we're willing to journey to places that are the least of these. It's his parents' home. We see that. And what's interesting, when they leave and end up going to Egypt, if you follow the the story, in Matthew 2.19, it says, when they felt that it was safe to come back because we know Herod was killing all the young children because he was trying to find this one who was born a king, and he was trying to protect his throne, and so he slaughters all the children, but Joseph and Mary, an angel comes and warns them, and they're able to leave. They live in Egypt for a time, and it says when they come back, they wanted to go back to Judea, which is where Bethlehem is. Why is that? Because they did not want to go back to Nazareth. They did not want to go back to the place. They knew that they had in their possession the child Messiah. Can you imagine such a responsibility? Vanessa's out of town. It's everything that I can do, right, to get my kids at least wearing clothes that match. I can't imagine the responsibility of it would be if God comes to you and says, I want you to raise the child who's going to be the Savior of the world. And I can tell you what they're thinking. He should grow up in the city of a king. That's Bethlehem, the city of David. But even God, through the work of providence, would not let them go back to a noble city so that Christ could have a noble beginning. He wanted him to grow up amongst the least of these because all throughout the story of his birth and the story of his life and the story of his upbringing, God is trying to tell us that we will experience a measure of his closeness if we're willing to go among people into the places of the least of these. Nathaniel's bias when Jesus turns 30 comes onto the scene and begins his ministry in John 1.46. What does Nathaniel say about Nazareth? Come on. Yeah, can anything good come from Nazareth? Even the people of Jesus' day understood that which we're talking about today. It was a place of no ones in a nowhere place. Isaiah 53, 1 through 8. And you know, we shouldn't be surprised at that because all the prophets of the Old Testament spoke of Jesus' humble beginnings. Listen to this. Who has believed what we have heard? Who has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or splendor that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. And he was like one that people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him, yet he himself bore our sickness and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. 
We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquities of us all. We talked about that last week. Listen to what it says about him. He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. Come on, it doesn't seem like it's the right story for a king. If you're writing the story, is that the story that you write for a king? If you're writing the story, do, do you make the king someone who's despised and rejected and that there's nothing about him that would draw us to him? Jesus, in all of his beginnings, was himself one of the least of these. He himself, in his own life, from the town that he grew up in, the family that he was born into, even the life that he lived until he was 30 years old, he lived in absolute obscurity. Why does God make humble circumstances so much a part of the story of Christ? Because God is trying to teach us something about how we draw near to him over and over and over throughout this story. God is saying to you and I, there is an experience of his nearness. There's something of his presence that we only discover when we are willing to journey into places among among people of humble circumstances. When we spend time amongst the least of these, we experience something of God's presence that he's desperate for us to discover. So how are we as a church family going to journey into places and among people in the least? Because we don't just want to talk about what's in that book. Come on, we want to live that out. And so in 2012, we've got some specific things that we're going to do and some focuses that we're going to have. So Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Let's turn there. Matthew 25. 31 to 46. It says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels are with him, listen to what it says. It says, Then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them one from another just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. Listen to what it says. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Come on. The least of these right here. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? They're not questioning what they saw. They're questioning whether or not it was really, they didn't realize it was Christ himself. Listen to what it says. When do we feed you? Or, or thirsty and give you something to drink. We know we gave other thirsty people something to drink, but when do we give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and take you in? Or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or visit you? And the king will answer them. This is Jesus himself. I assure you, whatsoever you did for one of the least of these, my brethren, you did for me. Come on, you did for me. Then he will also say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I, listen to the reason that he gives for their punishment. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't take care of me. I was naked. And you didn't clothe me. 
I was sick and in prison and you didn't take care of me. And then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, right? Because what their, their defense, if we had known it had been you, we would have done something different. If we had known it was you, we would have acted. Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? And then he will answer them, I assure you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me either. Matthew 25, 37, you've got to be close enough to see. You've got to be close enough to see. We've got to be willing to journey into places that are maybe beyond our comfort zone. We've got to be willing to journey into places that that might not be our first choice because part of the key to this text is that we have to be close enough to see the people so that we can make a difference. It's interesting, isn't it, that over and over and over again that word see keeps being restated in this parable. When did we see you? And Jesus is saying, come on, if you don't go to those places, you're not going to have an opportunity to see. And when you have an opportunity to see, you're close enough to make a difference. We've got to be willing to be in places and among people and be close enough to see them with our own eyes. You have to be present if you want to experience his presence. Is there a nearness of God that you have never felt because you have never been close enough to see the least of these? It doesn't mean that you've got to sell your home and go live in a different place unless he tells you to. Come on. He might speak to your heart. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about abandoning the life that you have. We're just saying if this book tells us that there's an encounter that we can have with the creator of the universe and it's going to be here, fill in the blank, why would we not run after that like a hidden treasure? If, If this book says to us, the creator of the universe, if you'll come, I'll meet you there, how could we not go? And all throughout the story of Scripture, all throughout the story of Jesus, he says to us over and over and over and over again, be in the places of people who are under-resourced and are of humble circumstances because there's something of my presence that you need to discover that you will not find unless you go to that place. Luke chapter 7, 36 through 40, we have this great story of where Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house for dinner. And as he's reclining at the table, it says this woman, if you read the text, it says she's a sinful woman. It says she's an immoral woman. It means that she's a a woman of poor reputation in the community. And it says that she comes around behind Jesus and she brings a, a box that's filled with perfume and she breaks it open and she begins to wash Jesus's feet and cry over his feet and wipe it with her hair and all the religious leaders in the room they begin to whisper amongst themselves and they say if this man was truly a prophet he would know who this woman is and he would not let her touch him it's a powerful story because as you and I begin to step out into places and among people that maybe are outside of not just our comfort zone, but the comfort zone of the social circles that we travel in, other people are going to have those same thoughts about us. Maybe for a different reason, but it's the same thing. That they don't feel like those people are worthy of our presence. If we're going to, as a church, be willing to go to places and spend time with people who are under-resourced, you have to be prepared for people that you know, family members and friends, to question whether or not you should be a part of that. 
And there's something inside of you that's got to be willing to say, even if other people, even if other people that I love, even if other people that I respect, even if other people that I'm usually following them, they won't follow me, I'm going to go all the same because I know that God's presence is there and that presence is a treasure for me. There's got to be something inside of us that says, I'm not going to let other people's biases keep me from doing the things that I know that Christ has called me to do. In 2012, these are a couple of places that we're going to be going into. Newport News, we have a campus here, and we have a campus in Williamsburg, and the Aqueducts is an apartment complex that's here in Newport News. We're talking with the Boys and Girls Club. They have a chapter there. Where's Amanda? Where's Amanda? There she is right there. Amanda's going to be leading a team. It's a new team that we're launching here at the City Life Church. We're going to launch a team of people that's going to begin to ask the question, how can we have a presence in that community that's a lasting presence? Not a show up one time and do a big event, but that we can show up and begin to make a difference in the lives of children who are at risk. Come on, they are the least of these. And I'm telling you, if you have never been in a neighborhood like that before, if you go, you will never be the same again. You will never be the same again because you will find something of God in that place that there's a part of you that's been longing to taste. For some of you, there might be something inside of you that's just been elusive your whole life. You're a follower of Christ. You're a part of church, but there's just something else that's missing. I'm telling you, this could be it. To walk into a community like that, sit down and spend some time with a child who has no hope. I'm telling you, you'll be dehydrated from the tears that begin to fall from your face because you will experience your creator in a way by a measure that you've never tasted and experienced it before. It'll change your life forever. In Williamsburg, we called Redevelopment and Housing, and they picked a particular neighborhood, Catherine Circle. Where's Pastor Justin? He's going to be handing out flyers on Monday. He's taking the teenagers from the Williamsburg campus. They're going into that neighborhood. They're, listen to this, Redevelopment and Housing. This is a governmental agency. said, if you will show up in this neighborhood, we'll give you free access to our 15-passenger van. They made a contact rush for the rec center, which is like the Taj Mahal gymnasium, right, of Williamsburg, if you're familiar with that. It's a gorgeous place. They're going to give us free access to the gymnasium. We're going to be able to bring those kids in and begin to build a relationship. It's, those are small first steps, but I'm telling you, everything has to have a start. And as a church, we're saying, come on, we're going to be close enough to see it. We're going to be the people that step into this parable and say we're willing to be close enough to see the people, to see the pain, to see the hurt, so that we can be in a position to do something about it. Because it's not enough just to see, you've got to care enough to give. You've got to care enough to give. You've got to be close enough to see it. You've got to be care enough to give something to make a difference about it. Matthew 25, 40, this is where Jesus said, as much as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. He doesn't make that statement anywhere else in the Bible except when he's talking about people of humble circumstances. As much as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. We're going to be, as a church, we're going to be close enough to see and we're going to care enough to give. You have to be generous if you want to experience his presence. Is there a nearness of God that you have never felt because you have never shared what you have with the least of these? Now I know we work hard for what we have. And sometimes other people don't have because they've made poor decisions. It's interesting, and is it nowhere in the stories does Jesus say that that's a good excuse? He just says, make a difference in their lives. Show up and do something about it. Whether or not you think they deserve your help or not, that's not the point. There's a nearness of God that we experience, and we begin to open up 
the resources that we have control over and begin to use them to touch the life of someone else. Listen to this in Leviticus 19. This is one of my favorite texts in the Bible. When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields. And do not pick up what the harvesters drop. It is the same with your grape crop. Do not strip every last bunch of grapes from the vines and do not pick up the grapes that fall to the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you for I am the Lord your God, which means he has the right to tell us what to do. You're right? right? How many people grew up and you're, you're, you're asking why and your father, your mother, your grandparent, right? They said, because I told you so, right? That's a fancy way for God to say, because I told you so. Now, we're, we're not farmers. Most of us in here don't own vineyards, Right? But the story translates over, how could their standard of living have been different if they had harvested the corners of their fields and sold that at the market? I'm telling you, they could have got that new donkey they were eyeing at the marketplace, right? Could have got that new pair of sandals that had just come out. They like to get stuff just like we like to get stuff. But God said, I'm telling you, he's, this, is what, this is part of the Mosaic Law. Choose to live at a lesser standard of living so that you have financial margins in your life so that when you're close enough to see it, you can care enough to give something towards it. All of us have to have financial margins in our lives. We have to choose to say, I'm going to live a notch back. For some of you, he might ask you to live several notches back. But I'm telling you, for all of us, we're all asked to at least live at least one notch back so that there is something in our coffers so that we can give to meet the needs of the poor in our world. In 2012, we're going to be a church that challenges people to choose to live at a lesser standard of living so that we have the means to give when we see the least of these. Mon Don Latta was here just a couple of weeks ago, the missionary from Peru, and he threw out that great quote by Jim Elliott. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to take possession of what he cannot lose. There is a, a fascination we have with the temporal things of this world. God created this world for us to enjoy it. You know we believe that if you've been a part of the City Life Church for any amount of time. But there is a point where we all have to be willing to look each other with honesty and say, if the enjoyment of this world causes me to neglect the poor and needy, then I'm enjoying it more than what God intended. I've got to be close enough to see, and I've got to care enough to give. And if I'm going to care enough to give, it means that I have got to be willing to put margins in my life financially. That when we sit down to do our budgets, we're creating room, disposable income that we set aside and say, I'm going to have an impact on poverty in this world this year more than I did the last. Come on, the least of these. Courage enough to sin. It's my last one. Matthew 25, 44 through 45. This is where the people that didn't do anything, they asked the question, when did we see? When did we see? Now, I was studying this passage this week, and I was praying over this message. And, 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 and as I was praying, this is what I felt like God's heart, what he spoke to me in my heart. I was just going to do a two-pointer and then, come on, because I have Baptist roots. I had to do three, right? So. So I'm praying, right? Or I think I'm done with the sermon. And God just begins to speak to my heart. And this is what I felt like he, he spoke to me. He said, Fred, in the society that you live in today, you can see beyond your reach. You can see farther than you can touch. 
through media, through the news. We, we have knowledge of things that's happening around the world, the least of these, that's far beyond our reach, far beyond the aqueducts, far beyond Catherine's circle. And I felt like what God was saying to me is, Fred, just because it's outside of your reach doesn't mean it's outside of your responsibility. Just because it's outside of what's reasonably practical for you to get there doesn't mean that you get a pass on making a difference. So then I began to pray about that and talk to God about that, right? At first, I'm complaining a little bit. You know, that's not fair. And then he says, well, it's because I told you so, right? That, we have that conversation. We're on the other end of that with God ourselves sometimes. But then I began to realize, you know, it, was, it wasn't too different in the early church. Maybe not to the degree that it is for us today, but I began to study and do some research. Let me give you this, and I want to go to this text. Even if in the first century, people's ability to see far exceeded their ability to be within reach to give, but God still expected them to find a way. Listen to this. This is in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 15. It says, Now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor, but they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And you can keep reading that. Hopefully you'll spend some time again with these notes this week. But here we have this incredible story where Paul was giving an appeal to churches throughout the region where he had planted because he's trying to raise money for the church in Jerusalem because there had been a, a drought. There was a famine in Jerusalem when you study the, the, uh, the history there. And Paul is trying to reach out into all the other churches because the least of these in Jerusalem where it all began, now they were in need and even poor churches like this church come on in Macedonia was saying we're going to find a way to touch something that's far beyond our reach. Even here in the first century we see that they took on a sense of responsibility for the least of these that was even beyond their borders. Come on so for us as a church in 2012 we're going to say we know of things that are happening around the world we're going to have the courage enough to send through sending resources, through sending missions teams, through sending people. Come on, there's going to be people that grow up in this church that feel called to live in a different country. There's going to be people that grow up in this church that feel like they're supposed to live in a different place, in a different land. And we're going to, come on, how great is that going to be in the history of our church when we send our first missions, missionaries overseas? Just because it's beyond our practical reach doesn't mean that it's beyond our responsibility. You're going to be talking about faith promise again this year. We're not going to spend time talking about that, but it's going to be a way that it's going to be another initiative that we're going to do in 2012. We're going to talk about joint campus initiatives. We're going to find ways for the Newport News campus and the Williamsburg campus to come together and to touch areas of the world. I met with a lady this week who lives in Williamsburg, and they've got an organization called Heart for Orphans. In the Ukraine, when you're, what, it's like 15 or so, you can't live in the orphanage anymore. You have to go out. And many times they don't have anywhere to go. So this woman had a dream, had a vision. They began to buy houses in the Ukraine. They put house parents there. They began to gather all of these teenagers and begin to disciple them and teach them job skills. They started with one house. Now that they've got six. Now the government is letting them go and do Bible studies in the orphanages all throughout the Ukraine. Come on. We're going to find some things as a church that we can partner up with in Williamsburg and say we might not be able to go, but we're going to have the courage to send the resources so the people that are there that they can make a difference. And I'm telling you this, even in those moments, you will experience the nearness of God. 
even in not going, because you have the courage to make a difference, to touch the least of these, I am telling you, you will experience the presence of God in your life in ways that you never have before. Missionaries, this year, we're trusting and believing God that we're going to be able to pick some missionaries that, we're going to, that we know that are on the field. That's why we've been having some of them come in. We had Lewis Johnson came uh, just a couple of months ago, right? We had Don Latta come and talk about the work that they're doing. Those missionaries are only able to do the work that they do if there's churches that are here in the States are behind them. And so we're going to begin to set aside, come on, the church has to have margins even in its own finances so that we can minister to the least of these. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back. Let me read you this verse in Psalm 139. I was at a men's group this morning. One of the gentlemen that were there, he read this verse. Listen to this. Stand with me. If you're scheduled for prayer, too, you can make your way to the front. Listen to this verse in Psalm 139. It says, search me, God, and know my heart. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in to everlasting life. Lead me in to everlasting life. We know that as a congregation, that God is saying to us that there is a nearness that you can have with me. There's a closeness. There's a physical proximity that God's just not going to be some faraway mystical idea that he's a living God who's present, and he wants us to experience his presence. And so all throughout Scripture, he teaches us how we can discover, be awakened to who he is. And we're saying as a congregation, come on tonight, here as we're finishing up 2011, as we walk into 2012, that we are going to be among people in places where being under-resourced is a daily reality. That we're going to, come on, lead you, and we're trusting that you're going to go with us together into the places of the least of these. Father, we say search our heart tonight, as the psalmist wrote in Psalm 139. Search our heart. And Father, where there is reluctance, we say, Father, deal with us. Where there is selfishness that's in our hearts, deal with us. Where there is fear and trepidation, deal with us, O oh God. That your spirit even now would begin to stir deep inside of us, that there would be an excitement, that there would be an enthusiasm, O oh God, that there would be something inside of us even tonight that says, I can't wait for these moments to come. I can't wait to be in places and among people that are the least of these, not just because I want to make the difference in the life of a person who's hurting, but I want to experience the presence of my Creator in every way that He makes possible for me this side of heaven. God, if we're walking through this life and we feel distant from You, if we're walking through this life and we feel estranged from You, if we're walking through this life and we, we feel like we, we've, we just can't hear Your voice, Oh God, then give us the courage to go to the places where you say that you're waiting for us. Give us the courage to go to the places where you say that you're waiting for us. Your nearness in our lives, in Jesus' name.
We're going to worship through this song together. If at the beginning of the service, come on, you were somebody that raised your hand. Come on, if you were somebody that raised your hand, I'm going to invite you to come. We've got the Ballards over here and the Dodds here. I'm going to, Vanessa's going to come up. We're going to stand right here. There were several hands.